And she carried that faith into her adulthood and ultimately into uh, her family. So I was raised in the Catholic Church. Um, I was, you know, at Sunday Mass pretty much every Sunday um, of my childhood. Um, uh, Midweek, I would be at the Catholic Church for catechism. And for those that don't know what that is, it's kind of like a a youth group for, for young Catholic kids. And um, I jumped through every hoop that they had um, kind of set up for young people in the Catholic Church. Obviously, I was baptized as a baby into the church. Um, I uh, made my first Holy Communion, which, again, is this milestone that you pass as a young Catholic child. And then I made my confirmation, which happens um, a, a little later as a, as a, a preteen. Um, so even though that was a part of my you know, existence, a a lot of my existence. Um, I never really had what I would consider to be a authentic, um, spiritual encounter, uh, of any kind. Um, I was happy to, you know, to participate because, um, at the time I was a pretty good kid, you know, getting good grades, um, making good choices, good decisions, um, uh, you know, I, I was well behaved. Um, I was happy to, um, to, to, uh, to do whatever my parents wanted me to do. So I was a band geek. That means I, I played the clarinet, um, in the band in school. Um, uh, in junior high, I played the clarinet in the marching band. I played the trombone in the marching band. So again, I'm just a really kind of average middle-class, um, right. kid, but ultimately all of that changed when I was years old. <laughs> yeah. Everything changed when I was 14. Um, I had come to a crossroads and, mm. uh, and I had found live music and I was playing the bass guitars at the time. And- Welcome to this episode of After the Cross Ministries, A Threefold Cord is Not Easily Broken. I have a very special guest with me today, and he is a follower of Jesus Christ who I've known for several years. He first introduced me on his radio program called, um, it was a Hope Radio, and he was so excited about what, what I was doing in my life, how God was using me with music. And he's a musician. He uh, works with the prison ministries, and he has a heart to put instru- musical instruments into the mission field to help those with um, without those instruments. And Richard Andrews is my special guest. Come on to the stage, Richard. Hey, sis. So I'm just so moved and blessed to have you here today. When I talk to people in the prison ministry. God has given you such favor with them. They know your testimony. It, it amazes it amazes them. And they know how you still go into the prisons and minister to the inmates. And the crossover that you and I have is I have a real heart for the prison ministry. I think we could get a lot of those people out of prison. They shouldn't even be there if they could be reading. However, once they are there, 
I want them reading and I want them to come out and um, have productive lives of, as citizens in their communities. So that's your mission as well to uh, give these inmates um, a vision and a hope. But let me have you introduce yourself and we'll just get started about, first of all, why you're involved with Prison Ministry Fellowship. Well, the I think the main reason why I uh, feel so drawn uh, to prison ministry and to the mission field of state prisons all over the country and even all over the world is just because of my own personal journey. And I had made a a series of just selfish and self-destructive choices um, as a youth. And I uh, carried into my adulthood making those um, those same selfish and self-destructive choices uh, that led to a life of addiction and crime. And that pretty much only leads to one of two places. And either you escape from it entirely or you end up dead or you end up in jail or prison. And for me, I ended up in prison. Um, I had been in and out of the county jail for a number of years. And then ultimately that led to a four-year term uh, in a California state prison. So obviously because of that history and because of um, uh, my testimony that includes uh, being a an inmate in prison, um, you know, I've kind of come full circle, and now I'm I'm extremely passionate about bringing the hope of Christ um, into prisons because that's where He found me, and I believe that's where um, He will find many. Because sometimes when you hit rock bottom in prison, you have nowhere else to look but up, and that is a a great opportunity to just come in and throw someone a lifeline. And for me, that lifeline is the gospel of Jesus. So, yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about that mission field. Well, it's very exciting. And um, this is going to be a long interview. I'm just so excited because people can listen as they're getting ready, put their earbuds in, clean their house, or they could be driving. This is a a lot of people listen to my program when they're commuting. And um, so I'm very excited to have you share your story. If you would want to start with your childhood, what it was like in your home and when things started going bad in your home. Yeah. Um, I was actually born into a, uh, into a pretty average middle-class home. Uh, I was born, um, in San Gabriel, California, which is in Southern California. And I was, um, pretty much raised the majority of my childhood in a suburb just outside of Los Angeles called West Covina. And, um, so in that, uh, you know, it was, a it was a time of, um, you know, kids playing until the streetlights came on and, um, you know, riding bikes with your friends and, um, you know, playing cops and robbers with makeshift guns made out of, you know, sticks and whatnot. And it was just a very average, uh, middle-class existence. And um, my mother actually graduated from an all-girls um, Catholic high school. Uh, she was born and raised uh, in the Hawaiian Islands on Maui, and that's where she attended um, uh, high school. And she carried that faith into her adulthood and ultimately into uh, her family. So I was raised in the Catholic Church. Um, I was, you know, at Sunday mass pretty much every Sunday, um, of my childhood. 
Um, uh, midweek, I would be at the Catholic Church for catechism. And for those that don't know what that is, it's kind of like a like a youth group for for young Catholic kids. And um, I jumped through every hoop that they had um, kind of set up for young people in the Catholic Church. Obviously, I was baptized as a baby into the church. Um, I uh, made my first Holy Communion, which, again, is this milestone that you pass as a young Catholic child. And then I made my confirmation, which happens um, a, a little later as a, as a, a preteen. Um, so even though that was a part of my you know, existence, a, a lot of my existence, um, I never really had what I would consider to be an authentic um, spiritual encounter uh, of any kind. Um, I was happy to, you know, to participate because um, at the time I was a pretty good kid, you know, getting good grades, um, making good choices, good decisions. Um, uh, you know, I, I was well behaved. Um, I was happy to um, to to uh, to do whatever my parents wanted me to do. So I was a band geek. That means I, I played the clarinet um, in the band in school. Um, uh, in junior high, I played the clarinet in the marching band. I played the trombone in the marching band. So again, I'm just a really kind of average middle-class, um, kid, but ultimately all of that changed when I was years old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everything changed when I was 14. Um, I had come to a crossroads and, Hmm. uh, and I had found live music and I was playing the bass guitars at the time. And, and uh back in the day you know kids used to start bands in their garages and and you don't see too much of that these days but it was you know very prevalent back then uh that's high school right starting high school um actually i was in i was in junior high when i was starting to play um 14 guitar well i was actually 12 when i started playing the bass guitar yeah yeah i was 14 years old when i ran away Okay. That's when I ran away from home. And I ran away from home because I had an opportunity to um to play the bass guitar in a band and my uh parents kind of shot that down and um and I basically rebelled in that moment. I was at a crossroads. I had a choice to make. I could either continue down the path of being, you know, an obedient son or I could rebel and I chose to rebel. Wow. And I ran away from home so that I could, you know, basically just pursuing my selfish ambitions to uh to want to to play this instrument in this environment and um that's when everything changed for me i went from you know being an honor roll student you know and a band geek to becoming a a teen father and a high school dropout and a and a drug addict so a whole lot changed in a in a very short amount of time uh by the time i was 18 years old i was starting to get um, arrested. I was not only using drugs, I was a full-blown addict and I was dealing drugs. Um, As I said, I dropped out of high school and I was a teen father expecting my second child uh, by then. And um, I was just a very, very different person. And ultimately that lifestyle um, led me to a time in state prison, as I mentioned. Uh, I was sentenced to four years for possession with the intent to sell methamphetamine. And, um, and you know, all of a sudden I, you know, go from being a middle-class kid to being a, 
a prison inmate. And uh, uh, it was a it was a hard time, but it, it didn't seem too difficult at the time because by then my heart was hard, like hard as stone. Um, I was I was angry. I was um, mean. Uh, you know, every other word that came out of my mouth was the F word at the time. Interestingly enough, I was I was actually fearful of going to state prison. I had been in county jail many times, but I I had this idea in my head of what state prison was going to be like. And I was I was fearful. But when you go in, you you kind of project this this hardness, you know, as a as a safety precaution. So I went in, um, you know, project projecting this this aggressive kind of posture. Um, but as it turned out, I fit right in uh, in prison. So it only took a very short time before I got settled into that culture. And it's a very different culture than it is out here. And uh, I was just another inmate counting the days and, and doing my time until I would be uh, released. And a series of events um, that took place in that prison stint is ultimately how uh, I came to faith in in Jesus Christ. So it, it happened in that prison. Um, let me ask you how your parents were responding to this first before you share how things were happening in the prison and how God led people to you in prison to to show him to you. First, how did your parents, I mean, they must have broken their hearts. A lot of us were raised Catholic. And I think just not even to follow in that path of faith was very hurtful for Catholic parents until they see that your relationship with, with the Lord is a real relationship. Um, so I can imagine, and the audience will know at the end of this interview, how you, about your parents. So. Yeah. My, um, uh, one, a fun fact of my story is that when I, um, ran away, I had, uh, obviously I had left at a time of day when my parents were, uh, both at work. So okay. I had made arrangements for someone to, uh, come to the house with a little pickup truck. And I had packed up everything that I thought was important at the time. And of course I'm 14. So I packed, you know, some clothes, a toothbrush, um, you know, my collection of albums, you know, my stereo. Yes. It's like I, I just a handful of, of things is what I took with me. And um, and I had no contact with my parents for almost two years. And I was actually at the local mall one day and uh, someone tapped me on the shoulder at the mall and I turned around and it was my dad. And it was actually the first time I had been face to face or had any contact with them since I had ran away. Wow. So it was as awkward as you're guessing it might have been. It was that awkward times 10. And wow. uh, he was very gracious. Um, all he told me is uh, he asked me to call my mom is pretty much all he said. Because her heart was broken. And uh, and I actually uh, you know, I lied. I, I wanted to get out of that awkward, uncomfortable moment as fast as I could. So I told him, absolutely. I'm going to, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go call her right now. This, this is, you know, 
predating cell phones or anything like that. It was about landlines and cell and, uh, and pay phones. So, you know, I basically tried to convince him that I was going to go to like the nearest pay phone to call her right then. Now I had no intention of, of calling her and I didn't. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was really a, a fun fact. And, and I had, I had pretty much little to no contact with them um, during that time. And what I mean by little contact is that when I would get really desperate out there, um, you know, like at the end of my rope, like, uh, like I, I, I'm, I'm addicted and I'm lost and I'm homeless and I'm hungry and I'm, I'm cold. I mean, you know, the stories of people, you know, uh, sleeping on park benches or this and that. I did all of that stuff. I used to walk through neighborhoods uh, at night. And uh, if I came across a home that had a, a motor home or something parked on the side of the house, I would break into the motor home and I would, you know, try to just get out of the weather and sleep for the night. I mean, I did that many, many times. Um, so anyway, uh, sometimes things would get so desperate that I would do the thing that that I, I feared the most, and that was basically reach out to my parents for help. <clears throat> and uh, and they were very gracious on how they dealt with me. Um, but I, I, you know, I was lying to them. I, I had no, you know, no plans on changing uh, my ways at all. I just wanted to use them and manipulate them. So I would, you know, I would get off the streets, maybe be able to sleep for a while and and, you know, get as much food in my body as I could, you know, eating everything, eating them out of house and home for a few days. And then I would, you know, basically steal from them from my mother's purse or, um, you know, her jewelry box or whatever. I, I would steal and then I would leave and go back out there and and run amok until I had, you know, reached a desperate point again where I had to call for their help again. So this was the extent of our relationship. Uh, for all of those years, um, I had no idea who they were. They had no idea who I was. But after you ran away, you would come home and still steal from them. Did I hear you right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then so with her money missing, she probably knew at least you were alive. Money was missing. It was probably Richard, you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't assume what she thought during wow. those times. I, it would be. Okay. It wouldn't be fair to do that. I don't know what she thought. I, I didn't know you went, would go home and, and do that and go out again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I did. And um, and this ultimately went on until I ended up in state prison. And uh, while I was in state prison, I uh, started to receive um, these cards in the mail from basically it was from a stranger. I, I didn't know who the person was. I didn't recognize their address, you know, the return address, but they were definitely intentionally writing me because they had to have my first and last name. Every inmate is given a number. They had to have my number. They, they had to have some detailed information about me just to write me in prison. So it was definitely their intention to write me, but I had no idea who this person was. And these cards came very consistently, um, at least twice a month for over two years, I would receive uh, a card from this person. Now, the cards were very religious in nature. I mean, like 
overtly religious. Everything in the cards was about, you know, God and Jesus and uh and his love for me and his plan for me and it was it was um it was really repetitive. It was just it was just this constant influx of of these religious, you know, overtly religious um messages. And at the time um religion played no part in my life at all i mean i i couldn't be further from it and i i you know truth be told i considered the contents of the cards to be pretty much nonsense i mean i people who who were religious or had any kind of a belief system or a faith system i i used to mock them and and i uh, considered them to be uh weak and foolish and uh so when i get these cards um you know i i i just think the contents is just just nonsense you know yes um however um when you're in prison and no one is writing you and no one is corresponding with you um you feel that you feel that even the hardest of hearts feels it. Now, at the time, I didn't know just how much I was feeling it until the cards started to come, and I realized just how good it felt to hear my name called during mail call. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though these cards were filled with content that I considered to be utter foolishness, um, I came to depend on those cards coming. <laughs> Um, I, I all, I was so selfish at the time. I would even feel entitled to get my cards. Like maybe a card was, was what I considered to be late, you know, one month. Then I would start to question like, where's my card? You know, I was very selfish, but, um, but I say all that to say that, that this, you know, this simple inanimate object, you know, a stamp and an envelope and a few words jotted down on a car, like they held so much weight on the inside of me. Um, It's really hard to put into words. I mean, in retrospect now, I think what they brought with them was hope. And I, I, but hope wasn't really in my vocabulary. So at the time I wasn't able to identify what I was feeling. But again, in retrospect, it was, it was a measure of hope that was coming through at the time. And, um, I would read every word of every card, even though I, I, uh, didn't believe in any of it. Um, I still read every word of every card. I come to find out later that, um, that the word of God doesn't return void or empty back to him, but it actually is accomplishing a thing that it was sent out to do. So even though I wasn't seeking him, just by consuming his word through these cards, there was something happening on the inside of me. Again, I didn't know it at the time. This is all in retrospect, looking back. Um, uh, now, just a few months before my uh, release date, I found myself in the uh, in the prison chapel one night for a uh, chapel service. Now, truth be told, I didn't go there for the service. I had actually a- attended for a a selfish reason and because the the chapel was centrally located so if you had friends on other prison yards um you could all meet in the chapel for a chapel service it was a 
it was a way of of um kind of getting around some of the you know some of the uh restrictions that they had in place and that's why i was there that night but there was a guest that had come and he um was from the outside and he he spoke and he sang i remember he had a guitar and he he sang but i i had no idea what he was i couldn't tell you today what he sang about or what he talked about i have no memory of that but i have a very clear memory of at the end of his time uh, him asking everyone in the room to bow their heads and close their eyes. And um, at the time, um, I I didn't comply because I I just simply wasn't one of them. I wasn't mad at him. I wasn't mad at anyone in the room. Um, but I certainly was not going to bow my head um, or close my eyes. So um, when he made his request, I'm pretty sure everyone complied in the room but me. Because as he began to scan the room with his eyes, he his he made eye contact with me and he kind of froze and locked eyes with me. So I tried to motion to him physically a couple of times to try to encourage him to proceed with the message because I I wasn't going to be participating. Um, and it was all nonverbal. I'm trying to, you know, use hand signals and different things like that to get him to to continue because everyone else has their eyes closed and their heads bowed. Um, anyway, he was pretty much ignore, ignoring all of my, uh, hand signals and whatnot. And I quickly came to the conclusion that the only way I was going to get out of the room was to close my eyes and bow my head. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I was not happy about it at the time. I was very angry. I, 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 I used to get angry so fast back then. Um, uh, like just zero to 60 in, in a heartbeat, you know, I was just immediately yes. angry and it was, and it led to just a lot of aggression and, and just a violent kind of a mindset. And I, and, and it was no different that night. I was angry and, um, uh, but I closed my eyes and I bowed my head simply to get out of the room. And as soon as I did, um, I immediately, uh, had two images in my, in my mind's eye. And the two images were the faces of my two daughters. And I, uh, I remember closing my eyes and, and like seeing them and, uh, and with it came just a wave of guilt and shame and, I was, I was mindful of every selfish thing I had ever done. I was mindful of every moment I neglected them. Uh, I was mindful of every time I, I chose drugs over them. I chose myself over them, uh, chose my own needs or my own interests over them. And, um, and it came out of nowhere. I mean, the moment came out of nowhere i did not see it coming um and it hit me like a ton of bricks and um uh, i remember having my eyes closed and just wanting so desperately to get as far away from that moment as i could now on the streets i could get high i could just numb all of that pain away by getting loaded but there in that moment i had nothing to take away um that 
that feeling of of just just what a horrible person I felt like I was in that moment. And uh and I wasn't necessarily someone who felt guilty about his his actions, you know. I I knew who I was. I was a, you know, I was a misfit. I was a I was an outlaw. I was a criminal. I was a drug addict. Like I knew who I was and I was fine with that. But in that moment, not so much. And uh uh, I'll never forget another, I felt someone tap me on the shoulder and it was another inmate and I opened my eyes. And the first thing he said to me is, Hey, do you want to go up? And I remember having no idea, having no idea what that means. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not religious at all. I have no idea what he's asking me. Um, but even though I have no idea what he's saying, I blurted out. Yes. It was like, Wow. It was like it came up from the inside of me and I had no control over it. And it I blurted out yes. And he was so excited and I found out real fast what he meant when he asked me if I wanted to go up because he walked me right down the middle aisle, um, right to the very front of the platform. And the guy who, you know, was ignoring my hand signals just a few minutes earlier. Now I'm standing right in front of him and he says, we're going to pray for you. And, and people were cheering and it was a, it was a, it was just a, a blur, mm. you know? And, uh, and the next thing I, I recall is being back in my cell, uh, on my bunk and the lights went out. And my head's on the pillow and I'm about to fall asleep. And I remember thinking, what the hell did I just do? And I fell asleep. Woke up the next day, remembered all the cards I got twice a month, every month for over two years. And I had saved every card. And I remember one had a phone number. So I went through the cards. I found the one with the phone number. And back then they used to have uh, phone booths on the prison yard and you would step into the phone booth and make your collect call. And, you know, and then that's how you used to make calls in there back then. And uh, so I signed up for my phone time, stepped into the phone booth, went through the, you know, the hoops of making a collect call to this phone number in this card. And I have no idea what's going to happen. And then I hear a little old lady's voice break the silence. And she says, hello. <laughs> and I said, hello. And she said, who is this? And in my head, I thought, you know, you just heard the recording. They they hear a recording and it says you're getting a call from a really bad person. And then they have to accept the charges. So I assumed she knew who it was because she accepted the collect yeah. call. Uh, anyway, I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't say all that to her. Um, I responded, I told her my name and I actually said my first and last name. And before I could get my last name out, she cut me off and said, have you given your life to Jesus yet? And I said, I went up last night. The, you know, I'm not sure if that's, if that's what you're asking me. And she said, well, praise the Lord. Now it's time for you to speak in tongues. And she proceeded to freak me out. <laughs> she, uh, she, uh, I, yeah, 
I'm not even sure what I thought at the time. I thought I was just listening to a bunch of crazy. And uh, I think the calls were about 15 minutes long, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, she basically prayed in tongues or spoke in tongues for the entirety of the call from that point forward. Um, <clears throat> she would take these big breaths when she would, you know, go back in. And at the time she would breathe and she would tell me, jump in when you're ready. And then she would just proceed. And of course, I never jumped in because I was never ready. <laughs> I had no idea what was happening. Um, <clears throat> and the phone call ended. It just cut her off. She was in mid-sentence and it cut her voice off. And um, that was my first exposure to anything Christian, evangelical, uh, whatever word you want to use. Yeah. Um, that was my very first exposure. And it was enough to tell me that at the time it told me i don't want anything to do with this like this is just nuts like i don't know what i was thinking when i went up that night you know at the chapel and then today calling this number like what am i thinking I, I, this isn't me i i you know i i yeah so I was released from that prison shortly after that phone call. January 8th of 1994 is the day that I walked out. And um uh and to revisit my my parents at the time the way the system works is if you're I just arrested have to in a, really quickly. January yes. 8th is Will's dad's birthday. Oh, really? Yeah, so I will okay. never forget your exit date anymore. Oh, that's awesome. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, I, for obvious reasons, I've I've never forgotten that, yes. that date, <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, the way the system works, when you're released from prison, from custody, you are released into the city or county where of your last arrest. That's just the way the system works. Okay. And I remember at the time thinking, if I'm dropped right back into that place, it will be a matter of hours, minutes before I'm just right back into the swing of things, uh, right back into that lifestyle that led me to that place in the first place. So I called my parents, who basically I'm estranged from. And I told them this fact of how the system works. And they actually lived in another county. And I, you know, basically I was saying, I was kind of pleading with them to allow me to parole to their home. Because if they allowed me to, because they were a family member and they, the the system would, would consider that, um, it would be maybe a chance for me to, do better yeah and um and my parents god bless them even though all they knew about their son was that he was just you know an addict and out of control and and manipulated them and lied to them and robbed them and and uh pretty much everything they knew about me at that point was bad but at the time they agreed to allow this stranger basically to to move into their home and I really believe in my heart of hearts that had it not been for them and that choice, 
my life may have turned out very differently. Um, so I am eternally grateful for that uh, decision that they made. And uh, so I paroled to their home and uh, I found a local church that had a 12-step program because part of my parole, one of the many conditions was that I had to have a paper signed saying that I was attending a 12-step uh, meeting every week. I had to uh, you know, give that document to my parole officer once a month or whatever it was. And um, of course, I was being, you know, drug tested, you know, randomly. There were just a lot of hoops to jump through at the time. Um, but the fact that I was led to a 12-step meeting at a church versus, you know, at a coffee shop, at a donut shop, at a community center, there's a ton of 12-step meetings. Um, but I happened to find one when I was looking for them that was at a church. And the people in that church really just surrounded me and um and ministered to me and um and there were a lot of people there that just wouldn't take no for an answer an answer at the time i was very antisocial, um um very kind of standoffish um still got a lot of meanness on the inside of me and stuff like that and these people weren't phased by any of that um uh, and any time I tried to wiggle my way out of doing something, you know, either by lying or, you know, saying I'm busy, I can't make it, I, I, you know, I don't have any money, I don't have transportation, whatever excuses I would come up with, um, they just basically ignored them all and and wouldn't take no for an answer. And I'll admit at the time it was frustrating. Like I, I was like, you know, what is wrong with these people, you know? That's amazing. But um, again, in retrospect, looking back, you know, man, I feel so fortunate that I was surrounded by people that would not take no for an answer. They saw through all of my nonsense, all of my lies, all of my manipulation, and they they just pressed in anyway. They pushed past that. Mm -hmm. And uh you know that you know and those are words of encouragement to all of us who do attend churches to you know write to the prisoners press into those kids who are rejecting and rejecting don't give up so i mean this is having multiple uh benefits to hear this from you <clears throat> yeah i hope so i hope so because um um i'm a firm believer in uh sending a stranger a total, a total complete stranger, some sort of a card or a note um, in the mail. I'm a, I'm a full on advocate of that for many reasons. And I'm not saying you need to commit to be a pen pal and write every week. I'm not saying you need to write a 50 page, you know, um, book every time. I'm just saying a small note goes a long way for me my cards were all filled with stuff that i could care less about it was hearing my name called at mail call that did the work of softening my heart that's where the work was done when i look back of course god's word was getting on the inside of me and later on in my journey that word would come back to the surface at different times as i began to grow in my faith as a christian but the things that really impacted me at the time was simply hearing my name called out. 
a couple of times a month? Well, you know, Richard, this is our audience is used to listening for, for 20 to 30 minutes. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to have you come back. Oh, and we could, we love could to. part two and they could Absolutely. actually hear about what happened in the church and how you, how things uh, went forward from there. Would that be okay? I would love to. I mean, my my story is covered in God's fingerprints. I mean, it's one miraculous thing after another. And when I say miraculous, I mean the kind of stuff that man could never take credit for. It's only stuff that God gets the glory for. And and any opportunity I'm given to to brag on Him, I I welcome it wholeheartedly. Okay. Well, I'm going to end this episode. And uh, but we're going to keep on talking, so you're not going to go anywhere. Okay. We're going to keep on talking, and I want to thank the audience for being here today. And uh, please listen to some of the other testimonies that are on this YouTube after the Cross Ministries. Thanks for joining us today. And our special guest is Richard Andrews. And if you want to uh, go to his Facebook, I'll have some information down below, some links where you can make a donation to help his ministry. And we will talk about um, his ministry to put musical instruments into the mission field. So I'll have some links down below and stay tuned for our next episode. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of After the Cross Ministry with our special guest, Richard Andrew. This was part one, and uh, next we will have part two. So if what he has shared has inspired you and you'd like to keep these videos continuing forward to help other people, consider making a donation. Step-by-step uh, Dyslexia Solutions is the sponsor. So After the Cross Ministry is an affiliate. You can go to... Uh, dyslexia solutions or dys sol.com. This is Dr. Marian Sintron. You can also find us on PayPal charities. We are a 501c3 charitable organization and we would love to, um, hear from you. And also thank you for your donations in advance. God bless you and please share this with someone else. Bye bye now. Mm-hmm.